Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 14, the end of chapter 1. God's word from the New Testament, Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 10. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your ears will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are in, who are to inherit salvation. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let's pray. So what is your favorite piece of clothing? That is, this is the item that fits you perfectly, is super comfortable, and its style you never get tired of. Maybe it's a pair of socks that make your feet feel like they're wrapped in warm air. Or you can't wait for the cool day to put on that cozy sweatshirt. Or there's the house pants that make you feel like you're on vacation in your own home. The business skirt that energizes you to get stuff done. Be it a fuzzy scarf, a pair of jeans, or a fancy pair of boots, you love to wear this item and you hate the thought of having to throw it out. But after much wear and tear... The threads start to fray, stains dot it, and the colors have faded. The holes leave you no choice. You have to toss it. They don't make it anymore, so you can't replace it. Thus, as you stand over the trash can to drop it in, you sadly think, man, all good things come to an end. Indeed, your worn-out shirt that you loved is a good example of our world, where everything eventually wears out and perishes. The only thing that stays the same is that everything changes. And yet, in contrast to our decaying world, God has given us one thing in particular that is consistent and persistent, which is our confidence and comfort, namely, the Son. So the author of Hebrews is in the middle of proving to us that Jesus is greater than the angels. Now, this may seem obvious to us, but for the saints to whom he is writing, it's quite relevant. For one, they are being tempted to go back to the synagogue with its fascination with angels. And two, the polytheistic world around them was pretty enthralled with spirits. The neighbors next to them spent considerable amounts of time and interest in speculating how spirits, malevolent and beneficial, may harm or help them. And to herald the greatness of the Son, the author has listed off a string of Old Testament quotations. He cited 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2 to showcase how Jesus fulfilled the Davidic covenant. He referenced Psalm 97 and Psalm 104 to demonstrate how angels are servants who also worship the Son as God. And he finally brought to the fore Psalm 45, where the anointing Jesus received for loving righteousness exalted him above all others. Well, now the author keeps developing this doxology to the Son 
by quoting Psalm 102. Now, up to this point, the author has focused more on the office of Christ fulfilling the Davidic covenant. But with this song, he takes us back to the beginning. He moves from kingship to creation. For Psalm 102 praises the Son as the architect and manufacturer of heaven and earth. Christ laid the foundation for the world. He spun the heavens together as if he was knitting a stocking cap with his fingers. The sun poured the concrete, framed the walls, and painted the finishing touches on all things visible and invisible. And this is the same point he made in verse 2, that everything was made through the sun. Yet what stands out here is that this psalm is addressed to Yahweh. It is a hymn to the God of the Old Testament in all his powerful majesty. What is addressed to Yahweh in the Old Testament, though, is now applied to the Son. For in Yahweh we come face to face with the Son. This shows the, showcases the divinity of Jesus as true God, and it instructs us that what we learn about Yahweh in the Old Testament is also teaching us about Jesus, the Son. Nevertheless, the main point here is that the sun remains. Yes, he fashioned the verdant valleys of the globe. He painted the the glittering constellations above. But the sun remains. Stars fall. The land decays. But the sun endures. Before the cosmos even started kicking, the sun was. And long after this world is recycled, the sun still will be. This publishes the eternality of the sun. From eternity past to eternity future, the sun remains. Now, when we think of things that are old and permanent, the gold standard for us often is the golden or the, the, the firm stuff of the universe. We think of mountains that are as old as time. Stars and supernovas reckon centuries as mere seconds upon the clock. However old this creation is, it is ancient. But this hoary-headed and fossilized world is a mere infant compared to the sun. The earth has a beginning. The sun does not. The heavens have an end point. The sun doesn't. The Lord and Savior to whom you belong is forever enduring for eternity. But this is not all the psalm likens, uh, not all, as the psalm also likens this withering world to a worn out robe. The metamorphic mounds that seem imperishable to us are actually not that different from a linen shirt eaten by too many moths. Faded by the sun, rip-stained and full of holes, is the world in which we live. And yet, what do you do when your fancy black-tie outfit has been worn into a rag? You change it. When your tattered best dress is, uh, is, is all messed up, you use it in the garage to clean up the oil spill. Well, likewise, this frayed college hoodie of a world is being recycled and changed. This means that the sun is also the tailor of the new world. For you can't throw out the old unless you have something else to put on. 
And so the son is replacing this ragged age with a new one. He's the seamstress, tailor, and designer of the world to come. All the glories and delights that we look forward to in heaven and the new age, Jesus created these for you. He authored this amazing world, and he built a far more excellent world of new creation waiting for us. Though the main thrust of the psalm is that as the world changes, as the world, as the earth gets taken off and put on like a teenager trying to figure out what to wear, the sun is the same. As it says, you are the same and your years have no end. The earth is disposable. The sun is permanent. This world is in the flux of decay. But the sun is imperishable. Up and down, there and gone, on and off, the cosmos always seems to be changing. The sun, though, is always the same. Stable, persistent, and consistent is Jesus Christ. He doesn't get moody or wake up on the wrong side of the bed. By the time you or I hit 50, we're a very different person than when we were 10 years old. After 20 years of marriage, your spouse is not the same person you married. We grow and develop and mature, hopefully for the better, but sometimes not. But the sun is the same. There is no shadow of change or variation in him. And yet why is this a good thing? We are so used to the fluctuations of life that such unchangeable sameness Seems a tad boring. We lean towards the variation. We like the new and the exciting. The same old, same old, this is a bit of a snore. But such is not the case when it comes to our Lord and Savior. And this is brought out by the rest of Psalm 102. Now, the author quotes for us the last few verses of Psalm 102, which is the good news, good news conclusion of this psalm. So then how does the sameness of God or the Son bring rest, uh, resolution to the psalm? Well, this is a psalm of lament. As the title states, this is a prayer for the afflicted when he is faint. Thus, in the first part of the psalm, the psalmist laments him being on the precipice of death. His bones are in, are in fire within him. His heart is as dry as withered grass. Ashes are his daily bread, and his own tears is all he has to drink. Foes mock him and torment him, abandoned and forsaken. He hoots in pain like a solitary owl among ancient ruins. Under the anger of the Lord, the psalmist is mere seconds away from death. And yet the psalmist links his personal agony to that of Zion. He is painted in the dust, and Zion has been reduced to dust. The stones of the holy city are scattered like dung upon the field. Jerusalem lays like a ghost town, nothing but piles of rubble and debris, among which the psalmist raises his lament. His personal plight is tied up and caught up with the demise of Jerusalem. Therefore, he prays for the Lord 
to rebuild the ruins of Zion. Have pity on Zion, he says. In fact, the hope of his prayer looks rather ideal and glorious. Note that the psalmist petitions for a time when the nations will fear the name of the Lord and flow into Zion for worship. The Lord will look down on Zion, restore her, and the glory of the Lord will shine forth from Zion. God will set free those condemned to death, and he will answer the groans of his people. The psalmist here prays for a distant future remaking of Zion, when international worship will be offered up to God's glory dwelling in the midst of Zion. As he says, his lament is recorded for a later generation, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. And the conclusion to this prayer for deliverance from death and the petition for the rebuilding of Zion is that God is the same. The icing on this cake is that as God takes off the garment of the fallen world and puts on the new, new tailored creation. This then equates the restoration of the fallen Zion with the dawn of new creation. And it grounds the promise upon the foundation that God is persistently and consistently the same. Because the Son is the same, so his promises for new life and Zion renewal are sure. For as you know, a promise is only as good as the person who makes it. If a toddler promises you $10,000, it's rather meaningless, as the toddler doesn't have a dime, nor does he have any control over such a large sum. Your neighbor can promise to make you the Queen of England, but with no authority and power to grant such, it's a hollow promise. Thus, the promise of our salvation is tied to the person who gives it. And the Son is able. As the glorified Davidic King, Jesus earned for us the new Jerusalem, and being the same, Christ will not renege or default on his promise. The son does not change his mind. Jesus will not decide on another course of action. Christ's wisdom is not subject to the unforeseen challenges or problems that might alter his solution. He doesn't overpromise. Jesus never fails to count the cost. Therefore, the sameness of the son is the diamond-grade certainty that he will deliver us from death, He will restore Zion to a heavenly glory and bring forth new creation. The permanent consistency of the Son makes his redemption of us correspondingly sure and guaranteed. And to add to this wonderful sameness of the Son, the author of Hebrews now adds one final Old Testament citation to his list. He leaves his favorite psalm for the last. Psalm 110. For surely, as he said, God never dressed this majestic psalm to any of the angels. God did not offer the right-hand throne to an angel, but he did to his son, Jesus. Sit at my right hand. Now, we are quite familiar with this psalm, and Psalm 110 pairs up perfectly with Psalm 2, which was quoted in verse 5. 
Both are enthronement psalms. Both speak of David's son and Lord fulfilling the Davidic covenant. And both express the everlasting throne and glory of the Davidic king for us, his people. Thus Jesus fulfilled Psalm 110 at his resurrection and ascension on high. In his glorified body, Jesus floated up upon a cloud into heaven to take his seat next to the Father's right hand. This line then hearkens our attention to the past, finished work of Jesus. Namely, Christ has already conquered death in his resurrection, and he's already resting upon his throne. And yet next to this fully accomplished work, the author cites the next line of the psalm about the ongoing, unfinished task. He says, until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is glorified on high, but not all of the foes have yet been subdued. Upon the throne, God is still converting and conquering all his adversaries. Rebellious sinners still need to be called and saved. Others are being sealed and kept for destruction. Jesus conquered upon the cross, but his victory is yet to reach its zenith. Not everything is under his feet at the moment. And this means, of course, that his foes are still lurking. Evil forces yet fight against the Son and his people, us. We are saved but not yet glorified. Struggle and hardship afflict us. Persecution and death fight against us. Like the psalmist of 102, dust and ashes is the world we know. Thus the finished and perfect work of the Son to sit at the right hand is contrasted with the final goal of his victory in heavenly peace. That is, we live between the time of the Son being glorified in his resurrection and our own resurrection in the glorious remaking of Zion. And within this season, now the author reasserts the role of angels. He says, are not angels ministering spirits sent to serve us? First, he points out the angels are sent. There's a large difference, as you know, between the sender and those sent. The sender is the master. He has the authority and prerogative. The sent ones are bound to the will of the sender. That is, the superior sends the inferior, and so the son dispatched the angels. Secondly, he points out that the angels serve. They're ministers and servants. The angels are not lords nobles or aristocrats. No, the Son is the only Lord and King. Jesus sent forth the angels to be his butlers, maids, and janitors. Finally, the Son directed his angels to serve us who are to inherit salvation. Christ employs his angels to be our waiters and waitresses. They help those who are waiting or everlasting salvation. And one thing you don't do is worship the servants. You can tip your waiter. Respect and gratitude are due to those who wait upon you, but you do not venerate or worship servants, which is what the angels are. 
the author of Hebrews then shows us that the veneration of angels within Judaism and paganism is illicit and nonsensical. The Son is the Lord. The angels are servants. And the servants point us to the Lord. That is, the angels are meant to amplify the wonder of the Son. They are signs and pointers to Jesus. To worship angels is kind of like bowing down to the scenic overlook sign instead of gazing upon the grandeur of Christ. Moreover, now note how he talks about us in verse 14. He says, we are those waiting to inherit salvation. That is, we look forward to the hope of glory. We long for a time when the final enemies will be subdued under the sun's feet and we will be raised on high before the light of Christ's face. Though by this language, note that the author aligns us with Christ. Jesus inherited the greatest of all names, and so we will inherit salvation in heaven. The inheritance of the Son proved him to be far superior and greater than angels. Well, if we inherit with the Son in the age to come, then this will put us in a higher place than angels. To inherit in Christ destines us for a glory brighter than the angels. In heaven, as a gift of grace, you will be exalted above the angels. And if we are to be greater than the angels, then it is doubly foolish for us to worship them. God didn't create heaven for the angels, but he did for you. The son didn't die to redeem angels, but he did sacrifice himself to bring you to glory. We are lower than the angels for the moment, but Jesus saved us to exalt us above the angels. This is the majestic work of the glorious Son. And this is why the sameness of Christ is such a bright light of his glory. Jesus doesn't change. He died to atone you or to, to atone for your sins. He ascended on high for an eternal kingdom. He orders everything at the right hand to bring us to heaven and to subdue all his and our enemies. And being the same, Jesus is the faithful and steadfast recipient of our prayers and worship. When answers seem to be long in coming, we can keep praying because Christ is the same. When we are faded and weary, Jesus is consistently strong and gracious for you. When we ache for new creation to be delivered from the death of this fallen world, we can rest in the consistency of Christ. For Jesus' love for you does not change. His grace never ends, and his mercy towards you does not die. Therefore, praise the Lord for the Son. All glory be to the Son who created this world, who is the tailor of the new creation, and is the one who died and rose victoriously. He rules everything for our salvation. Yes, the storms of this age will wage a bit longer, but our eternal anchor 
is found in Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Praise the Lord for our wonderful Savior. Amen. Let us pray.